0: At the end of the day, uh, psychological integration is not salvation, and I think that most people who have done the work will be ready enough to concede that this this is not the end of the road. It's not salvation. What, what do we want? We want uh, not just integrated individuals, but we want a we want a redeemed order of being. We want justice on earth, and Christianity has from the beginning been about that, not justice. In some never, never land, that's a myth. Christianity from the beginning was about justice on earth, the kingdom of God on earth
1: as it is in heaven. Welcome to Psychology and the Cross, a podcast that investigates the foundations of union psychology by researching its links to Christianity as thought, faith, and lived experience. Someone with a deep experience in all these matters is Sean McGrath. Sean is a professor of philosophy and theology at Memorial University of Newfoundland and also an affiliate of the School of Religious Studies at McGill University in Montreal. He has published widely on the topic of the philosophical roots of analytical psychology and psychoanalysis, as well as the concept of the unconscious. Sean also spent five years as a professed monk, Together with an offshoot group of the Roman Catholic religious order, the Carmelites, he lived an off-grid life in the woods and mountains of Colorado. His learnings from the time in the monastery, as well as his studies at the Jung Institute, he will tell us a bit more about in the first part of the interview. He will then help correct some important theological misunderstandings of Jung. How to understand evil, a foundational question of Christianity, but also for Jungian psychology. How unions misunderstood the role of the feminine in Christianity. How Christ is at the heart of our Western imagination to be viewed as not as a symbol of the self, but of God. And last but not least, how by laying down your life for your community, you might find the inner peace that you seek. This is a very rich interview. Please listen carefully.
0: So when I graduated from my undergraduate degree in philosophy, I was so intent on, you know, discovering the truth for myself that it seemed to me, um, I should not stay in the university because the university was a place for a professional degree. And I wasn't trying to make a career out of the search for truth or wisdom. I was looking for the truth to save my life. So I, I had traveled in India and I had, uh, I had explored Buddhism and and so on, but I had never really explored my own tradition. And I realized that there was something basically missing there, something basically dishonest. In fact, I discovered, somewhat like others, that I couldn't really convert to anything Eastern, Buddhism or Hinduism, without really dealing with my own Roman Catholic upbringing, which I had never really examined. And so I. I began visiting Catholic monasteries, and learning about contemplative Christianity, and then that led to a vocation, and I spent five years as a professed monk with the with an offshoot group of disgulfed Carmelites who were living more or less a primitive, off-grid life in the woods and in the mountains. They had two houses, one in Colorado, one in Nova Scotia.
2: And how come you, you, you left?
0: the life we were living was a very simple life. Most of my work was manual work. I really only had a couple hours for study every day. I loved the life and I loved, and I never turned back. I became a, a contemplative Christian then and I have, never, I have never turned back on that. But I, I felt very called to philosophical and theological work on a, on a level that I couldn't do it at the monastery. And so I actually got a year's leave to see if, you know, I needed to look at a vocation elsewhere. And I went to the University of Toronto, and after a year at the University of Toronto, I discovered that uh, I had to I had to pursue this. I had to pursue academic work in a more serious way. And in many ways, you know, I feel like I had a second childhood there, and that I everything I really know about life I learned in those five years. It seems to me uh, that they were the greatest. Uh, that was the, those the greatest years in my upbringing, without a doubt. I didn't only learn about medieval mysticism and contemplative Christianity and how to meditate and so on I also learned you know how to how to harvest wood and how to how to build a house so there was a lot of practical skill that I learned there and but most of all I learned you know what it means to tend to the soul to care for your soul so you know why it's important for example to have a, a vibrant intellectual life but also to have you know an outdoor life at the same time and 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 also to leave space in your day for for nothing whatsoever for just what they used to call holy leisure um, it's if without that kind of attention to your life religion just remains a theoretical project and that was uh, that was something that i i would never have known had i not experienced it
2: Well, I also know that you you actually spent some time in Zurich and that you did get interested in Jung and and spent some time at the Jung Institute. It's not at all unrelated
0: to the monastery. So uh, five years in the monastery, from the age of 23 to 28, you can imagine it was a um, tumultuous time for me as a young man, and I went through a lot, of, you know, interiorly. And in fact, I had a psychological crisis. I think it was more or less the day after I made my simple profession, took my vows, took my habit, and so on. I fell in love with a young retreatant, a young girl who was on retreat there. And I had such a powerful attraction for her. Nothing, you know, It led to nothing but you know long, protracted conversations with my spiritual director. But I didn't understand what was happening to me. I did not understand how my soul could go upside down like that. And I didn't understand what I was feeling because I had never, never been in love before. And it was in that context that I started to read Jung to save my life. And I was reading Jung on anima animus originally and discovering, you know, that what should you do when you fall in love? Well, you should tend to yourself. You should look after your garden. It has to do with, you know, some kind of pressing need for an integration. This was my Salvation at that time, so I would get up very, very early in the morning to study Jung, and of course I was not discouraged from doing so. But I didn't have anybody in the monastery who knew anything about it. But they, they you know, they were open to to many things, and of course one thing led to another. And I realized it wasn't just anima, animus, but the whole issue of the unconscious became, you know, a, a real living experience for me. I mean, to 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 profess, you know your life to a religious order and celibacy and so on, and then the next day to have yourself tripped up by a powerful, powerful feeling that you didn't understand, and it was coming out of nowhere, and it was almost had a religious quality to it. You know, this was a, a, you know, kind of wake-up call that I have an unconscious, so to speak. You know, there are other ways to describe it we don't have to use the term the unconscious but that language helped me to realize that there's work to be done so after i left the monastery i was uh, you know deeply uh, involved in psychoanalytical work in a certain way and i had a i had an analyst for some years uh, as i was a new professor and i began to teach uh, psychoanalysis in my philosophy classes on an introductory level and then at some point i I decided to go more deeply into it, and I thought, well, I'm going to do some research in this. I applied for a Humboldt grant to do research in the philosophical background of psychoanalysis, particularly the 19th century sources of psychoanalysis. As you probably know, psychoanalysis didn't drop from the sky, but it had you know, a long history In philosophy, particularly German idealism, which made it possible for people like Freud and Jung to do the work they did, they received some concepts from a tradition uh, that I researched uh, as a Humboldt stipendiat in Germany for about three, four years. And while I was doing that work, I wasn't far from Zurich, I was in um, Freiburg in Germany, I realized that in order to really understand psychoanalysis, I needed to train. That, you know, I could not simply do this from the outside. I could not simply just do this as a, an analyst. although I was undertaking intense analysis at the time. I needed to train. I needed to be compl- become completely immersed in the paradigm. Of course, I was also open to the possibility that I was called to do psychoanalytical work. Uh, but that, the primary motivation, or at least the, the decisive idea there, was that in order to do my research, I need to train to become an analyst, even if I don't become an analyst, and that's how I ended up at the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich, and that's how we uh,
2: met. But but just shortly, I mean, how was that experience?
0: Well, it was you know it was wonderful and and in many ways you know in terms of a returning to a community life such as I had in the monastery, it was it was it was intense. As you know, the C.G. Jung Institute, the, those intensive programs. A real tight community develops around the training candidates, and that was wonderful. It was wonderful to be with a community of people who took the soul seriously because that was something that I was missing in the university and that I continue to miss in the university. Uh, You know, the soulless nature of the study of philosophy, for example something that I, I, I continually wrestle with and I don't have a solution for. So in a psychoanalytical community, the soul is on the agenda and your soul is on the agenda. And this idea of having to work on yourself as you train and as you study it, this was something that was just so natural to me. I think Jung was spot on when he, when he said that there was an analogy between psychoanalysis and medieval religious life, for example, or ancient philosophy, such as let's say the Epicureans or the Stoics would have practiced. That is, you know, a study that was also a way of life. And this is something that I think is not widely recognized that this still continues in psychoanalytical schools. So that part of it was really wonderful.
2: So well, moving in a little bit to the actual uh, theme of discussion and the psychology and the cross, I believe that you have uh, listened to the, the, to the previous two episodes with Murray Stein and also with Amy Cook. And in those two conversations, we've spoken of the the concept, if you can say so, of the Imitatio Christi and also how Jung is sort of linking that to his own idea of individuation. First of all, my
0: least favorite part of Jung concerns precisely this. I, I find Jung to be misleading, at best, on, on religion and theology. So with regard to Imitatio Christi, here's one thing I would say. It needs to be better theologically informed. If we're going to have a psychology of Imitatio Christi, I think it's a great idea. We, we, need, to be, we need to be a little bit more attentive to the sources. You know, for example, if if we actually look at the source texts of Christianity, we'll see that Christ is not primarily a model. You know, that was a heresy, the idea that well, we already have everything we need in in potentia, in our soul, and we just need somebody to model for model it for us, and uh, along come Christ, and we suddenly realize, oh, we just have to imitate him, and and we'll become saved. That was called Pelagianism. This was not original Christianity. Christ was not primarily a model, he was a savior. So if we think about the early texts, the first texts, the things that were written before any gospels were written, the letters of St. Paul, uh, there is no immutatio without a first transformation of the soul by grace, not by effort, not by practice, not by the law, not by meditation, not by a spiritual uh, exercise but actually by a kind of intervention, a divine intervention which transforms the soul, and then the imitation follows. This is the first gospel. And there is an important analogy here with other traditions. I think in particular with Mahayana Buddhism, they talk about other power, you know, that at a certain point, all the sitting and meditation in the world is not going to not going to, you're not going to break through if you're just relying on your own energy. You, something else is going to happen. There's going to be an extra egoic, you could say, an extra egoic power that is going to more or less transform you, invade you, make it possible. So it's not by effort that the practitioner, whether it's Buddhist or Christian, breaks through illusion. And, and it's for this reason that we really need to be careful when we start talking about, let's like, say, a psychological imitatio Christi. We need to make a distinction, I think, between, you know, psychological integration and religious experience. And I find that Jung is continually blurring this distinction. And it becomes even worse with the second, third, fourth generation of Jungians, when there really is no attention to the distinction. And psychological work, psychotherapeutical work becomes religious experience. And we we no longer need uh, grace. You know, all we need is uh, the right kind of attention to our complexes and to our dreams and so on, and, or, and, and we'll get there on our own steam. That's not the gospel, and that's not the Christ.
2: So so, so when Jung, uh, maybe very simplified, but this idea of, of not following Jesus as a, as a sort of role model, but he says somewhere like, to live your life as fully as Jesus did.
0: It's a beautiful idea, but but the first point we have to realize when we look at the text is that Christ is not only a teacher. He's not even primarily a teacher. You know, as Kierkegaard says, and I, I know you've had a Kierkegaard discussion on the podcast recently, you know, it with in in Christ, the teacher is the teaching. That's Kierkegaard, and he's being very faithful to the Pauline sources of Christianity. That is the point here is not to, I don't know, um, Follow the Beatitudes and so on. The point, rather, is to see in the Christ the teaching itself. And what do we see in the Christ? We see the crucified Savior. We see we see the we see God with us, God among us. He's absolutely unique at least he was experienced as absolutely unique by his contemporaries. We're not talking about an archetype walking around. We're talking about a human being who lived 2,000 years ago. We have far more reason to believe in the existence of Jesus of Nazareth than we do, for example, in the existence of Homer. Uh, so, you know, we, this is somebody who lived in, and who had a practice that transformed, transformed the world, or transformed the Roman Empire, made modernity possible. And so we need to s- sort of realize that there's, 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 a, there's a history here that we have to contend with. So what, what, did the, what did the first Christians see in Christ? Did they see a model for a moral life or for psychological integration? On the contrary, they didn't see that at all. What they saw was God among us in an absolutely unique way. And it was not experienced as projection. It was not experienced as, a, you know, the alienated self projected on somebody who happened to be walking down the road as though it could be anybody. So, you know, um, now I don't, I'm not suggesting that psychology needs to subscribe to that. On the contrary, psychology doesn't have to be religious. It could be perfectly atheistic. And I think that psychology, atheist psychology has helped many, many people. But if it's going to talk about the Immotatio Christi, then it needs to, be a little more attentive to what those terms mean. And, of course, once we are transformed and saved, um, the imitation of Christ follows. But if you look at the great imitators of Christ, they do so in such a unique way that there's no, there's no two that are the same. I mean, think of St. Francis, okay? St. Francis, one of the great imitators of Christ, but St. Francis doesn't act like Jesus of Nazareth. He acts in a completely different way. And when some of his followers tried to follow Francis and said, "Francis, I want to do what you're doing. I want to be like you." He'd say, no, "No, you can't do what I'm doing. If you do what I'm doing, it's going to be wrong. You've got to do your own thing, your own way." There's a you, you've got your each of us is intended to incarnate the divine in an absolutely unique way. So the imitation of Christ it doesn't have to do with doing what he did or speaking the way he did, but being open to the Father to God as he was, and that was. Christ's consciousness, that, you know, not my will, but the will of God. And then, you know, you become uh, a new Christ. That's the point. A, d- a completely different kind of Christ. Maybe a
2: Christ that doesn't look anything like Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, and, and maybe a Christ that looks like Jung. I'm just thinking, like, you know, isn't that also, isn't this Jung's rendering in a way? You know, don't follow Jesus. Live your life as full as Jesus did. It sounds very Jungian to me. I mean, when when you well, speak it like this.
0: Well, I I do think that Jung, you know, saw, understood something about Christianity. One of the things that I find really interesting is how Jung says, okay, I'm in India now, and there's all kinds of wonderful archetypal stuff going on, but I've got to go back home and deal with the Christ. That's the contents of my Western European soul. I thought this was a very good idea. And in many ways, he does, he endeavors to do with Christianity what Freud did with Judaism you know to to deal with the christian unconscious there is such a thing as the christian unconscious i think i think this is all excellent and this is a this is p- precisely what needs to be done but what happens and this is related to perhaps other things we might talk about with regard to psychology and its limits is that there there is a kind of there's a kind of usurping of the theological by jung the theologian no longer has anything really to say about this. It all becomes psychology. And and this is when things go a little funny. Uh, psychology that has no outside, let's say uh, theology is outside of psychology in some respects, or even philosophy or metaphysics, uh, psychology that has no outside, and this is precisely with the psychology of Gigerich, is psychological ap- idealism. It is an absolute psychology. And I think properly speaking it's an atheist psychology because if there's nothing outside then there's certainly no transcendent god uh, so, um, so at some point in the many writings at, uh, of Jung on Christianity this kind of this kind of move happens whereby the Christ of theology and the Christ of history becomes insignificant and all we're talking about is the Christ of the unconscious or the Christ of the European unconscious, underneath which which there is a collective, and so on in the self. So, I mean, I think that Jung is uh, a fabulous guide on individuation, the integration of the internal diversity of the self. He's a great representative of the psychology of productive dissociation, which is the psychology of the 19th century, romantic psychology. In many ways, he's a conservative, because Freud comes along and he tries to He's try. He tries to, you know, mm-hmm. rid psychology of its of its philosophical, theological, romantic heritage, and Jung says you can't do that. You know, uh, this is a distortion. So uh, all of this, I, I I entirely I'm entirely on board with. But when we go back to the 19th century sources of of psychology or psychoanalysis, we look at some of Jung's. 19th century predecessors will find a much more nuanced understanding of the limits of psychology, the limits of psychology and that which transcends psychology, and the transcendent as understood no longer merely as the unconscious, but perhaps as and this is. No- Nicholas Bridaev as the supraconscious, the superconscious, not just something underneath us but something above us, something that cannot be contained by our psychology. And it's only really with those kinds of categorical statements in place that we can properly make sense, let's say, of what Paul is describing when he speaks about Christ as the image of the invisible God. (laughs)
2: a bit more with, with, with Jesus and Christ. In my own conversations at times with, with Jungians or in my own training, uh, when one, one tries to discuss Jesus, it often has come back to sort of some of these uh, statements like Jesus, he's a symbol of the self. Is there something more that, that you'd like to share about Jung's relationship to Jesus Christ? You wrote to me that Christ is at the heart of Western imagination.
0: Because Christ is at the heart of the Western imagination, which Western imaginary Christ is the heart of European civilization. I believe that this is true. I believe that modernity, for example, with its emancipatory politics, wouldn't exist without Christianity, without the Gospel. That the secularization of the Gospel is what produced the best aspects of our modern culture, and I might add some of the worst aspects. So there's there's no way of there's no way of understanding. Let's say Europe and its consequences without understanding Christianity. And I think Jung understood this very well. So, this is why I think Freud's psychology of religion is so useless, really, um, because of the marginalization of the central psychological fact of the West, which is the Christ. Uh, now that said so I have no difficulty with the psychology of the self I think the emphasis on the self is extremely important otherwise when we have no when we have no um, psychological center point when there is no unconscious unity driving the development of the psyche we'll we we'll we'll just end up with a plurality which is just a carnival I think this is what happens in Hillman for example I, I, and I think hillman is 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 actually De-Christianizing the Jungian model. And I think the the repercussions of that are very severe. So no difficulty whatsoever with the with the idea of a of a self as the center of the psyche, which is somehow teleologically or finalistically directing the development of the individual. But when we talk about the symbols of the self here, I think, here, I think, is where the attention to the sources gives us a little bit of precision. So what, what does Paul say about Christ? He says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. That's Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God. Now, that sort of sounds like the symbol of the self, but let's think a little more carefully. We also know that the human being is made in the image of God. That's in the book of Genesis. So we have to ask ourselves, what's the relationship of this Christ image of God and this human image of God? and there we find a very rich tradition of reflection in the particularly in the church fathers where the thesis is essentially that you know the being who we are meant to be only comes into perfection in the Christ so in in Christ we know not only who God is we know for the first time who we are or more specifically who we ought to be so so if, if that's the theological thesis in a in a probably Um, inadequate generalization, Uh, let's look for a moment at the psychological claim that Christ is a symbol of the self. As we know, there are plenty of symbols of the self. Whenever there's a God symbol, a religious symbol, it's a symbol of the self. So it might be the Buddha, it might be um, the Tao, it might be a mandala. Now that kind of, uh, you know, all symbols being equal, of course, that's, you know, that's a legitimate approach to uh, to to religion from a psychological perspective, but at some point we need to go from the commonalities of all these things and look at the differences, and this is I think extremely important. It's very important to notice, you know, the, how different the Buddha is from the Christ, and you can't really know the differences between Buddha and and Christ unless you read Buddhist scriptures and Buddhist. Commentaries on scripture and Buddhist philosophy similarly with Christianity and then it's in the differences that 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 everything comes to life in a certain way And I think that what we see in the Christian Revelation of the Christ is that Christ is not primarily a symbol of the self. He's a symbol of God He's a symbol of God and the God and God is not the self the self then We'd have to say, from a Christian perspective, you know, that unconscious center of the soul, the self, is a image of God. And Jung says as much. He says it's imago Dei. It's an image of God. We have that in Genesis, and so it points towards God. It points towards God. But the but Christ doesn't simply express the human uh, the human reality. He does that, of course, but he also expresses the divine reality. We get both. This was a big debate in Christology in the 5th century, you know, fully human, fully divine. So you can't tear one from from the other, and you can't confuse both. You can't say, to be fully human is simply to be fully divine. That's not true. Um, But neither can you say to be fully divine is to be something unhuman. That's not true either. So what you have in the Christ is not just the human reality come to concrete expression, but we have the divine. Itself revealed. Paul will say, for example, that we really don't know anything else about God but what we see in the Christ, and this is found also in the Gospel of John. You know, nobody, nobody has seen the Father except for the Son, and what what you see in the Son is the Father. This is a radical, radical claim that the that the Christ becomes a kind of um, uh, the only concrete focal point. For the religious aspirations of the human community, longing for God, longing for knowledge of God, looking in the Torah, looking in wherever, in mystery religions. And only here, this is the scripture, this is the Christian account, of course, only here do we see who God is. So Christ is primarily a symbol of God. That's that's I think crucial. That's the crucial point. And and if he is a symbol of the self in some kind of general religious science kind of sense, you know, like Buddha, whatever, uh, it's in this very specific difference uh, that we truly understand who the Christ is. For, you would never say that about the Buddha, for example. The Buddha is not a symbol of God. Buddha said there is no God. Buddhism is, is, is if it's not atheistic, it's, it's a monotheistic, right? So there's a striking difference there. I would say that the Buddha has far more um, credentials for being understood as a symbol of the self in the Jungian sense than the Christ does.
2: And, and, and do you have anything to say about how you understand Jung viewing this Godman or viewing Jesus, or do you feel like he, he looked at him enough?
0: I feel that he really stopped looking at a certain point, and he dealt only with what he learned as a young man growing up in the Reformed Church, I think it was, with a father who had religious problems. Uh, he, he he was not particularly interested in theology or in what theologians had to say. And we can see this in the, in the dispute that he had with Victor White about evil. You know, Victor White was... In, um, a, a very generous and sympathetic and uncombative kind of interlocutor. He was a Thomist, of course, and a trained theologian, but he had a great deal of interest and openness to what Jung was doing. Unfortunately, it wasn't shared. Jung was not interested in what White was doing. And that, that, was, a, that was a discussion that really couldn't happen because of Jung's, I, I think, prejudices about uh, about theology. So there was something unintegrated about Jung's Christianity, uh, and I think that's that's what that's what confuses things. So I, I mean, at the moment, I'm having a hard time thinking of a really important point that Jung makes about the Christ. I can't think of a single one, honestly. <laughs> Perhaps there is one, but certainly the things he says about the Christ in the Answer to Job, for example, absolutely, absolutely mixed up. You know, so there's there's far, there's far too much of Jung's unintegrated Christian heritage in Jung's psychology of Christianity, and not enough Christianity.
2: talk of uh, the conversation he had with Victor White and and, and the question of evil. In, In our previous conversation, you mentioned to me that you see that somehow Jung is misunderstanding evil. You also say that there's no place for it in God. Could you maybe help us to sort of understand Jung's view on evil and your critique on that? So it's not
0: entirely true to say that there is no place for evil in God. It all depends on what you mean by God, of course, right? So there are different notions of divinity. I'm not saying there's only one. Now I'm a Christian theologian. I speak as a Christian theologian, and my sources are, as I said, you know, people like Paul, Maximus the Confessor, Thomas Aquinas. Um, so so that I, I I realize there are different ways of looking at these things. So I just offer what I know, or, or what or what what has been most illuminating for me on these issues. It seems to me that if you look at the question of evil, and I really salute Jung for making it such a central question, it really is a central question. And I also salute Jung for recognizing that psychologically speaking, it's absolutely crucial for the analysand or the the individuating soul to reckon with the reality of evil. Is and I and I think that we've forgotten that in so much self-help industry. I, I hear far too much. It's all good and not enough. This is bad. This shouldn't be. Now that said, uh, with regard to the question of evil, you know, it is perhaps the oldest question, and it is certainly the central question of Christianity. I mean, people don't recognize that the problem of evil is not uh, an objection to Christianity. The problem of evil is the presupposition of Christianity. Think about the central symbol of Christianity. It is the crucified Savior. Or if you don't want Christ as the Savior, call him the best man who ever lived. The crucified, the best man who ever lived, crucified and rejected by the community. What could be more evil? And this symbol is now the symbol of our salvation. So sometimes people think that, oh, yes, because of evil, we can't believe in Christ. I would say the opposite, actually. Only if you believe in evil can you understand the Christ. Historically, coming out of the ancient world, the Western tradition, we have three models for speaking about evil. And these are not properly distinguished in Jung, and they need to be. The first is the Neoplatonic model. And this is what this is the tradition of evil as a privation of goodness. This was at the heart of the discussion with Victor White. And Jung doesn't like this for good reasons, because to say that evil is nothing but the privation of good is to undermine its psychological reality. You know, it's nothing, it's just illusion or something like that. Now, that said, Neoplatonic Christianity, like in St. Augustine, uh, is quite different from Neoplatonic, from pagan Neoplatonism. In pagan Neoplatonism, you get the thesis that Jung objects to that evil is nothing, in, in, in Christian Neoplatonism, it's, it's, it's uh, modified. But nevertheless, there's that problem of saying evil is just nothing that's Neoplatonic. Then you have the opposite perspective in the ancient world, which is the Gnostic perspective. And this turns out to be the one that Jung ends up subscribing to for reasons that are actually inconsistent with his own psychology. In the Gnostic model, you have good and evil as both real, but as sort of equal and opposing cosmic forces. You know, I like to think of this as the theology of George Lucas, you know, the, the dark side of the force, the light side of the force, and they're always battling it out. They're always duking it out. One's always getting the upper hand, only for the other one to take the upper hand and somehow or other recognizing the two as a uh, dialectical pair, as the one will never be without the other. This is some kind of enlightenment experience and salvation. Now, the problem here, of course, is that if good and evil are equal and opposing forces, then they are really two parts of something higher, which is neither good nor evil. So, you know, the force is really in itself neither good nor evil, but has these two modalities. And so the divine on this Gnostic model really has to be understood as beyond good and evil, in which case you no longer have this real problem of evil, do you? Right? What you see in evil is really just divinity in another way, another shape, form. There's no particular reason, I think, to object to it definitively. And I think this is the direction Jung goes with the idea of integrating evil and so on. But there is a third tradition, and the third tradition is the one that is most maligned, most badly represented by Jungians, and that is the monotheist tradition. And This is what Victor White was trying to argue for. And in the monotheist tradition, you don't say evil is nothing. But neither do you say that it's an equal and opposing force to the good. What you do is you make a distinction between goodness as infinity, goodness as the unlimited perfection of divinity, you know, completely out of proportion to evil, and evil as created, if you like. That's a bit difficult, but a feature of the created world, or more actually, a finite perversion of creation. And according to monotheism, evil is permitted for God's inscrutable reasons, ultimately to do with freedom. It's permitted to infect the world for a time, but in the end, it shall be cast out. But the most important point is that there is no balance between them. You know, the, John one fifteen: the light shines in the darkness; the darkness does not comprehend it. There's no proportion between good and evil. An ant has more in common with a human being than evil has with God. So there's no you know, dark side of God in the sense of like a, an evil twin to, to to the Trinity or something. The devil is not God's uh, other personality or something that the Christians have repressed. On the contrary, uh, there is if, if there is such a thing as evil, which I fully believe there is, and so does Jung, uh, then it has something to do with us and the created world. Now, with, with regard to the Jungian Gnostic thing, about integrating the dark side, um, I don't think that Jungians are accurately describing their own psychology here, because plainly they're not talking about, you know, committing crimes or abusing others. And that's what I mean by evil. What I mean by evil, and what the tradition means by evil, is using somebody as a means. The devil is the one person who recognized no other outside of himself, neither God above nor another person. Everybody is an object for him. Using other people by, as a means to your own self-aggrandizement. Think about this as somehow taking a grotesque form in Nazi Germany, where all, where every everything becomes a means to the end of the glorification of the German state. Uh, Jungians are not talking about integrating that. You know, it's not talking. They're not talking about uh, um, you know becoming more uh, like a, on a, a kind of like. A, you know, early 20th, 20th century Satanism, becoming more deliberately bad and wicked and selfish, they're talking about becoming more honest about your desires, more honest about your failings, about the shadow, the inferior side of yourself, instead of projecting it onto others. That's all excellent psychology. But the integration of that is not an integration of good and evil in this cosmic sense. This is rather humility. And this is perfectly compatible with Christianity. This is the recognition that you're not perfect, that you're not God, that the things that you most hate in others are things that you have disowned in yourself. To make it a little more simple, so what Jung has done is he's he's objected to the thesis that evil is nothing, which comes out of Neoplatonic Platonism. It's also a feature, I think, of Of uh, some oriental systems, for example, Taoism. Jung is not on board there. There's a psychological reality of evil. This immediately puts him on the terrain of, let's say, monotheism and or Gnosticism, perhaps. Uh, And then Jung takes another step further, and he says monotheism is repressive of evil and denies uh, the divinity of evil or something like that, the shadow side of God. And so then Jung takes a Gnostic approach, and we end up with good and evil as equal and opposing forces. So ultimately, if, uh, if Gnosticism is the theology of George Lucas, Jungianism, at its worst, is the psychology of George Lucas.
2: We continue on looking at what you view as maybe some misunderstandings of Jung or maybe followers of Jung. There's also this uh, the idea of the fourth element or the feminine element missing within Christianity or the sort of embodiment of the feminine as a part of your individuation. You also see that as a as a misconception of sorts.
0: Yes, I think here what we see is Jung. Uh, dealing with the repressive misogynistic popular Christianity of the 50s, particularly in a European context, European Protestant context, but also elsewhere there was lots of there was lots of repression and misogyny in Roman Catholicism too in the 50s. he's he's taking this, you know admittedly skewered and inadequate expression of Christianity, but every age of the church is inadequate to the revelation and he's making it into, dogma. And this is a complete confusion. So it's a very good idea to deal with misogyny and repression. I think we should should kick it out wherever we find it. But let's go back to the sources. Now here's the question, is the feminine actually rejected by Christianity? And I would say openly, right out, on the contrary. On the contrary, Christianity has been, or is perhaps, the central religious force that has led to the emancipation of women. I would go so far as to say without Christianity, there would have been no emancipation of the feminine. That the recognition of the equality and the difference of the feminine is central to the New Testament. We know, for example, that Jesus admitted among his followers women. This was extremely countercultural at his time. Some of them perhaps were deaconesses in the church, you know, they were involved in roles of leadership. We know that Paul, for example, who is often given a hard time for saying women should wear you know, headdresses in church and so on, that he believes that ultimately men and women are equal, that there is no man, there is no woman, there is no freedom, free person, there's no slave, but we're all one in Christ. This was a absolutely radical breakthrough. This is a kind of universalism that exists nowhere else in the ancient world. It changed history. And at the center of it was a recognition of the the feminine as equal and other to the masculine, and even in the divine. So I said that Jung projects his own cultural prejudices onto the tradition and falsely concludes that the feminine is the rejected other of God. That's simply not true. Um, It's a complicated story, but let's just think for a moment of how the feminine then becomes uh, identified with evil in Jung, because they're both rejected. Uh, and, that, and then we, 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 we call for a reintegration of the feminine slash the devil into the Trinity. First of all, notice that Jung is in fact perpetuating the cultural problem of identifying femininity with evil. He hasn't changed it at all. He said, actually, no, the feminine and the evil, yeah, we could have the devil there, we could have the Virgin Mary, we could have a whore there, we could have a monster, you know? The whore, the monster, the Virgin Mary, the devil, they're the fourth. So there's, there's, a, there's a confused, identification of femininity with evil there, which is totally against his impulse. And then secondly, more importantly, I think Jung betrays how little he knows about Trinitarian theology. There is a long history of discussing the feminine side of God in relationship to Trinitarian theology. It goes back—in fact, it's even earlier than Trinitarian theology—it goes back to the Shekinah in Judaism which is the feminine aspect of God, the material aspect of God, or Sophia, the the wisdom figure discussed in the Old Testament, who is feminine, who plays before the throne of God and visits humanity with knowledge. These figures were at the center of the discussion of the first Christians, theologians, thinking about who God is, given that the fullness of God dwells in the Christ. So what we see, so... You know, there are others, too. The spirit, for example, is feminine. This is something that 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 early Trinitarian theologians were thinking about, and more recently, feminine, feminine, uh, feminist theologians have been thinking about. So in, in Hebrew, the word for spirit, Ruha, is feminine. There's even a tradition of speaking about Christ as androgynous, that he has a feminine side to himself. We call it Sophia. In any case, there's Everywhere, a recognition that, let's say, archetypal masculinity, archetypal femininity, have equal place in divinity. There, there's an active and there's a passive element to the divine. There's a receptive and there's a more initi- initiating aspect to divinity. And you know, the, these questions are not easy to. Re- resolved, there's plenty of debates about them, but they run right throughout the tradition. It wasn't as though we were all waiting for Jung to say, hey, we've got to put a fourth person in the Trinity and it's going to be maybe the devil or maybe the Virgin Mary or maybe both, uh, you know, because there's no femininity in the Trinity. This is simply simply uh, um, not true. Trinitarian theology has been discussing this point. For a long time, and now there is actually a great resurgence of interest in what they call sophiology, particularly come from the Eastern Church, where the feminine figure, the feminine figure of Sophia as a kind of divine uh, counter, a divine helper from the beginning, who, who is who is not one of the persons of the Trinity, but somehow the whole Trinity manifests to itself, the mirror of God's wisdom. Um, this is becoming a a, a real uh, theme. I think, among theologians today who are interested in recovering some of the mysticism and some of the more cosmic-oriented theology of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, None of this stuff has anything to do with Jung. Many of these people don't even read it. There it is. They find their way into the divine feminine simply by being faithful to the record of Trinitarian theology.
2: I want to, to, to sort of end with the question that I also spoke uh, with Amy about, about when we spoke of Kierkegaard. And we, we discussed this, you know, if Jung's psychology can be seen or viewed as a continuation of, of, of Christianity on some level, you know, or if it's a break. Sometimes he, he feels he's coming out as a, almost as a reformer of Christianity, you know, the old wine into new bottles. And I'm just wondering how you view that, you know, is, is analytical psychology sort of a continuation or is it, does it surpass? Well, I, I think that
0: it all depends on how it's practiced and thought. Now it certainly could be the continuation. I mean, it's, uh, historically, uh, I, I think it is, it, is the, it is the, what the Germans would call the Wirkungsgeschichte. Uh, it's the historical effect of Christianity. And I think Jung understood this very well. So you know, this is why tr- people who are training in analytical psychology they have to learn something about religion in general, but also Christianity in particular. There's 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 something, let's say, uh, deeply, essentially Christian about Jungian psychology. I wouldn't deny this, uh, but it does it surpass it? Certainly not. And with regard to Kierkegaard, here you have an excellent example. Of a, of a psychologist, everybody's astute, an observer of the human soul and, and the unconscious as Jung, who refuses to absolutize psychology. This is, Kierkegaard is a, a perhaps the best example of a metapsychologist of the finite. Psychology not as, not, not as idealism. Uh, But psychology as realism, realistic psychology, which means a psychology which knows that there is something more than psyche at work in the world. So I think, you know, uh, with regard to, uh, I mean, I think every, every practitioner is going to find his own way. And there is no particular, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to be a Jungian, obviously. You simply have to understand something of Christianity to understand Jung, just like you need to understand something about Judaism to understand Freud or something about Catholicism to understand Lacan these these people are human beings they bring their religious heritage into their metapsychology you'll have no critical purchase on the thing unless you understand these things i mean what i would love to see is that that, that psychology becomes something like meditation yoga eating your vegetables you can do it in any religious register you you like it's a good thing it's a good thing to care for the soul. You know, we had all kinds of other practices for caring for the soul in the ancient world. Paul is very affirmative of them. The early Christians were quite affirmative of some of the practices of the mystery religions in terms of a therapeutics of the soul or Stoicism or so, so on, you know, Epicureanism. There were a, a lot of practices of soul care in the world when Christianity appeared. And Christianity could be could affirm what was best in them without ever... Uh, being confused about what it was namely that christianity is not just a therapeutics of the soul it's it's much much more than that and uh, and it, and in that regard it's compatible with a great variety of therapeutics yoga for example or psychoanalysis
2: What could Christ or or Christianity bring to the world of analytical psychology today? Then I mean, is it is it possible to even think like that that there is something that Jungians really need to look at here? You know. Well, I mean, I'm tempted to say what Christianity
0: or Christ. Let's speak about Christ because Christianity is much more amorphous and pluralistic and problematic than than the Christ. Uh, what does Christ bring psychology? I think Christ brings salvation. And I don't, I don't think psychology does. And on the other hand, you know, beware theologians and would be mystics who have not done their psychological work because they have done a lot of damage to a lot of people. So it's not a one way street, you know. Uh, religion absolutely needs, uh, modern religion needs psychotherapy. It might be the case, as Jung himself said, that medieval religion didn't need it. It had its own methods of dealing with the confusions of the soul and the neuroses that rise in the in the life of an ordinary person. But modern religion needs psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Uh, but at the, at, at, at the end of the day, uh, psychological integration is not salvation. And I think that most people who have done the work will be ready enough to say, to concede that this this is not the end of the road. It's not salvation. That somehow or other, we want more. And I mean, for example, we want more for the world too. We want justice on Earth. You know, the world is I think far more dangerous now than it was when Jung was writing. Um, you know, we have we have tyrants who are now um, impervious to democratic critique. They just ignore mass protests and violate human rights as they wish. Um, it's not at all clear that, uh, you know, g- goodness prevails in history. So you know, wh- what do we want? We want uh, not just integrated individuals, but we want, a, we want a redeemed order of being. We want justice on earth. And Christianity has, from the beginning, been about that. Not justice in some never-never land. That's a myth. Christianity, from the beginning, was about justice on earth. The kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That was the Lord's prayer. Almost every scholar believes that at least this much
2: we know he said. On earth as it is in heaven. But but Jung would also say that the the kingdom is to be found within. Yes, and there are passages where Christ says something
0: similar. Um, but I, how are we understand that? Um, does it mean that uh, Christ, that the kingdom is simply a state of, uh, of an inner quiet, such as you might attain through a Buddhistic practice? Um, that's, not, that's not the biblical Christ. If you look at what Christ did, He didn't say, oh, let's all learn a spiritual practice now so that we can find inner quiet. In fact, He also has very little to say about prayer just that we should do it, and we should do it quietly and by ourselves. But what did he do? He healed people. He healed people, he, he criticized power, he turned the logic of the world upside down. You know, there's something hugely extroverted about the Christ. And this is a striking, striking difference from the Buddha. This is not a, an inward path, close your eyes and find the center. This is actually an outward path overthrow justice resist it where you know nonviolently of course resist it offer yourself for it lay down your life for others so if Christ has a kingdom within to path to teach us it is a path that proceeds in, uh, within by going without. In other words lay down your life for your community and then you'll find the inner peace that you seek.